Well, today, uh, my Kansas City Chiefs, I born and raised in Kansas City, if you didn't know that, uh, my Kansas City Chiefs begin their, their quest to uh, march, run it back, right, march to the Super Bowl, hopefully win another Super Bowl. And as I say those words coming off my mouth, I cannot believe that there would ever be a moment in my life where I'd be able to say, my team has a chance to, to maybe make a run for back-to-back championships. So uh, the Chiefs have uh, historically not had a lot of opportunities for that. So um, anyway, but that's a goal set before them. Uh, the goal they've been working for since they won last year. So they trained for in the offseason, that they began preparing for in preseason training, and, and if they've worked their way through the season. In order to reach their goal, right, finish well, they're going to have to, uh, they're going to need to stay together as a team. They're going to need to stick to the game plan, listen to the coaches, be on the same page. They're going to need to avoid some obstacles, like, Lord, please. Help them avoid the obstacle of falling down by like 24 points today like they did last year. Uh, I would rather avoid that sort of obstacle in this quest. Uh, They're they're also going to need to uh, overcome some challenges beginning today with the Cleveland Browns. They're going to have to press on and overcome in order to finish well together. And I know I'm, I'm giving you yet another uh, sports analogy, already two in the morning here, but, but honestly, uh, Hebrews 12, in Hebrews 12, the preacher of Hebrews has been giving us another sports analogy uh, for the Christian life, comparing it to running a race. And in our passage today, he, he's really focusing on what it's going to take to finish that race well, what it will take to finish well. But as we dig into this text, uh, we are reminded yet again that the Bible doesn't so often address us as individuals as much as it addresses us as communities, right? This isn't addressing a a lone runner doing all she can to, by her own strength, finish the race by herself. But it's it's speaking to a team, to a collective, a community, a local church, local churches, and it's calling them and encouraging them in what it will take to finish well together. That's what we see in our passage today, Hebrews 12, uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 17. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's word. By the way, if you're here, you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have some copies that we'd love to give you as a gift today. Uh, you can stop by the connection table and grab one of those. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with many with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this day and grateful already just for the joy uh, of being reminded uh, of your welcoming grace and love that you meet us with, singing about the assurance and the hope that we have in you. Um, and Lord, we pray that as we've, 
sung these words of truth and, and, and walked through these words of truth in our liturgy this morning, that, that you would continue to press your truth into our hearts by your word today and help us to receive it, that we might finish well together. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, amen. You may have a seat. So the very first word of this passage is the word therefore in verse 12. And that's a significant word, right? Anytime, uh, you know, a good student of the Bible, anytime you're, you're in the passage of Scripture and you find the word therefore, what it's doing is it is connecting what comes after that word with what has come before that word. It's connecting those things. So that means that we, what, what, what we looked at last week in verses 4 through 11 is really the foundation and the basis for what is being encouraged here in verses 12 through 17. So it'd be good for us to just remind ourselves kind of the big idea from last week's text, uh, specifically as it was proclaimed to the original hearers, the first century Jewish Christians who were enduring such hard persecution, right? The, the, the main idea, the big idea was this. The persecution and suffering that you are experiencing is not a sign that God hates you or is against you, but rather is a sign of God's love. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Your suffering is a sign that God is treating you not as an enemy, but as a son. Verse 7. In other words, the truth for us to remember this morning from last week is this. Your pain and your suffering in this life are not meaningless, but God has designed it all for your good. Verse 10, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So as we come to this word, therefore, here in verse 12, this is what we should have on our minds. This is what we should be hearing. Since the fatherly love of God stands behind your pain and suffering and designs it for your good and for your holiness, therefore, pursue strength. Therefore, strive for peace and holiness. Therefore, look out for and avoid and lay aside all the obstacles of idolatry and worldly desire that might sidetrack you. And the aim of these exhortations, these commands is this, that you would finish well together. But the word therefore is also significant in another regard. Because this is not a list of instructions for how to, how to secure God's adoption of you. For how you can become a child of God. If you do these things, then he will adopt you into his family. You'll be his child. This is not a list instructing you on how to do that. But rather, these are instructions for you to act like people who know they have already been absolutely persuaded. They have already been adopted by God as his beloved children. And that you know, you believe, you trust that your perfect, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful Heavenly Father loves you. And He's for you. And He's with you. This is how you lean in, even to the most painful trials of your life, seeing them as expressions of His loving discipline and not hateful vengeance. That's what the therefore represents in verse 12. God is sovereign over your lives, even in the pain and the suffering that you encounter. It's all by his design, but it's by his design for your good. 
and for your holiness. Therefore, pursue strength. Lean in to that beautiful truth that though Satan and others, and sometimes if you're honest, even yourself, meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Genesis 50, 20. And therefore, pursue that peace and holiness that God desires for you and avoid the pitfalls of idolatry and worldly desire that you might finish well together and enjoy the fullness of his love and grace and glory. That's the big picture of this passage, but let's dig into the details a little more closely. In light of God's perfect fatherly love and discipline, therefore, pursue strength. Pursue strength. The preacher of Hebrews says it like this in verse 12. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And drooping hands and weak knees are, are, are proverbial symbols in the Bible uh, for weariness and fearfulness. They are signs of discouragement and, and fatigue. The prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah is in, encouraging weary, despairing, fearful people of God saying this in Isaiah 35, verses three through four. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. Right, the preacher of Hebrews uh, turns basketball coach here, right? Urging his team, weary from a long draining game, a tight game, and they need to make a big stop on defense. Get your hands up, right? Keep your, keep your legs strong. Keep your feet moving. Keep them under you. Apparently, the author of Hebrews uh, was a true Hoosier uh, as well, right? But, but this is pointing us uh, to the, it's also pointing us to the danger that these first century believers were facing. The danger of growing weary and losing heart in the face of persecution and suffering. The danger of throwing in the towel and calling it quits, and thus far throughout Hebrews 12, the, the Christian life is being compared to a, a difficult race, right? A marathon and not a sprint. In verse one, we're encouraged to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now in verse 13, we're being encouraged, make straight paths for your feet, right? Move, remove the obstacles. Uh, make sure you have level footing and a straight path, the, the, the swiftest path to keep pressing on, keep running that race. Make sure you're not going to roll an ankle on a rock, right? Pay attention. Make straight paths for your feet. In other words, let us run well. Let us run straight. Let's not grow weary or faint-hearted, but, but keep running well. Keep running straight. The race that is the Christian life. This is the, the running theme, pun intended, uh, uh, of Hebrews chapter 12. But sandwiched between verses 1 through 3 and verses 12 through 17, we have verses 4 through 11. And God has those there because he wants us to understand a crucial reason for why, of why life is hard. Why do we face adversity? Why do people suffer? Why do, why do people get sick? Why doesn't God just fix it all? And apart from the truth revealed in verses 4 through 7, weariness, discouragement, could overwhelm us and stop us just dead in our tracks. But, but notice the connection here between verse 3, verse 12. Verse 3, we're instructed to not grow weary or lose heart. And then verse 12, it's strengthen your drooping hands and weak knees. Right? It's the same concern in both of those verses. The same concern both before and after the teaching on God's loving discipline. 
The aim of the entirety of verses 1 through 13 here, this teaching about God's discipline in our suffering, is that we would not give up the race. We would not quit. That we wouldn't be so overcome with, with weariness and discouragement that we simply just opt out for an easier path. But this isn't your typical coach, right? Who's, who's just like, hey, dig deep within yourself. You can do it. Right? It's not that sort of, of mindset here. They, this isn't a call to manufacture strength from within yourself by your own doing. But rather, it's a call to press into Jesus for the required strength to press on. Understanding God's love for you and the hardships you're facing is for your good. Believing that. Trusting that, believing that the Genesis 50, 20 is like a banner over your entire life. Over your entire life, the good and the bad. They meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Whether the they is others or Satan or even yourself in your own sinfulness. Even more, you find the strength you need to keep going by looking to Jesus who willingly entered this world of suffering for you. Considering Jesus who endured suffering that's beyond our comprehension at the cross. The full cup of God's wrath for all the sin of everyone who ever lived or ever will live poured out on him at the cross. He suffered that for you. Fixing your eyes and your heart on Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured that cross in your place, but is now raised, ascended, seated at the Father's right hand. To see him there, to, to understand that he is there right now, cheering you on, praying you on, putting the Holy Spirit at your back to propel you forward in this life, this race. You pursue strength by pressing into Jesus, and even more by pressing into Jesus together together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that at various points along this race, some are going to be strong and some are going to be weak. Some are going to be stronger, some are going to be weaker. And in the, in the length of this race, those roles are going to shift from time to time and season to season. Who are the stronger ones? Who are the weaker ones? And what that means is that every, at some point, we're all, we all need each other. We all need each other to keep pointing us to Christ, to keep pointing us and encouraging us and pushing us on. This isn't a solo race. It's a team effort that is described here. Pursue strength together. This is even more clear in the next part of the instruction, that in light of God's perfect fatherly love and discipline, we are to strive for peace and holiness. As we continue the race that is this life together, we are to strive for peace and holiness. Verse 14, strive for peace with who? Everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is gonna come as a complete shock to you, I am certain. But the truth is, is that while we have peace with God through the finished work of Christ, we've been restored that peace with God and he has made possible peace with one another. The reality is, we don't always experience peace with other people, even within the church. Jesus prepares us that in the world, that the world is going to hate us because it hated him. 
He says so, John 15, 18. The world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Again and again, Jesus is preparing us. The world hated me. It's going to hate you. The world persecuted me. Because you're with me, it's going to persecute you. You're going to face trials. Life is going to be hard at times. Because you are with me. So to follow Jesus is to expect some level of conflict, some level of opposition from the world. But how disheartening is it? How disappointing is it when that conflict is experienced within the church? And in the days that we are living in, this is a word that we need. For we find ourselves in increasingly divisive times within the broader culture, but also within the broader church. In the midst of political divisiveness and racial injustice and tension, the, the bottom continues to drop out of our moral depravity in our culture. And then you throw on that the weariness of an ongoing pandemic. The stage is set for all sorts of division and strife and fighting and bickering, both in the broader culture but also in the broader church. And the temptation, especially in a social media age where any of us, right, we, we, we feel like everybody's got a platform, everybody's got a voice, and it's easy. Just get out, pull out your phone or get behind the keyboard, type out a few words and post it. And, and you don't even have to think when you do that, and most of us don't, about how the words we write and say and the tone in which we share those words about what we say actually impact real flesh and blood human beings who are going to read and hear those things. The temptation is to simply just tear one another apart rather than seeking to understand one another and pursue peace. It's not hard to see how damaging this is for the church and for her witness in the world and how much our tone and approach diminishes the glory of God. As one commentator says, conflict in the church brings glory to Satan and disgraces our God. How many Christians have been discouraged from finishing the race because of the division they've experienced and witnessed in the church? We must strive for peace with everyone, the text says, both inside and outside the church, with our brothers and sisters, but also with our unbelieving neighbors. How do we do that? Well, this word strive here in verse 14 is a uniquely aggressive word. It carries with it the picture of, of chasing and running down peace, right? Like going after it hard, like sprinting after it and then tackling it. We're gonna grab a hold of that with everything we have. We're going to fight for that. This isn't the picture of a pious bystander, but an aggressive athlete kicking it into a higher gear to run down peace. There's intense effort being exerted. Other, other passages affirm this understanding throughout the, the Bible, right? We're told in Ephesians 4.3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you hear those words? Be eager, desire it, pursue it, work to maintain it, right? There's effort to maintain the unity that, uh, that is a gift given by the, the Holy Spirit to the church. 
Similarly, it says in, in Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue, chase it, keep working at it. Pursue what builds us up together in unity and peace. And in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That verse also gives us the truth that we cannot control others' responses to our, our pursuit of peace with them. We cannot control both sides of reconciliation and, and living in unity. But as far as it depends on you, Christian, do everything you can to live at peace with everyone. And we cannot forget the beatitude Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Not the warmongers, the peacemakers. This sort of peace can be pursued. Um, it can't be pursued by being a warmonger, posting accusations about your fellow believers all over your social media feed. It's not helped by, by constantly declaring how you're right and they're wrong. It's not helped by simply being a pious bystander either and hoping that it all just blow over and go away. It requires action. Action. Loving, humble, compassionate action. We need to remember this truth that uh, Tim Keller recently pointed out, I think. In Western culture, there is an enormous amount of self-righteousness about self-righteousness. We are so much better than people who think they're better than other people. There's a lot of truth in that. A lot of truth in my social media feed like that. What that means is that none of us, none of us in this room, you, me, all of us, none of us are beyond falling into the trap of self-righteousness. It looks very different on lots, depending on your perspective, but it's still self-righteousness all the time. I'm right, you're a demon. All of us have blind spots. All of us. Which means we need each other. We need one another to walk with us and encourage us to lovingly rebuke us at times and point us back to the hope in Christ that we have. Peace isn't pursued so well over the internet, friends. It's better pursued over a cup of coffee in a face-to-face conversation. It usually it isn't usually best pursued by leveling accusations, but it's better pursued by asking questions seeking to understand. At the end of the day, there, there is room for disagreeing with one another on certain things with Christian charity, kindness and compassion. There is room in, in some areas for seeking to understand one another and at the end of that conversation, agreeing to disagree and still loving one another, still being for one another. Certainly, we're, we're going to have to do this in order to love our unbelieving neighbors, right? We're going to have to. We cannot expect unbelievers to hold to Christian convictions if they're not Christians. That doesn't make sense. They're not going to. 
We cannot expect them to hold to those Christian convictions that we have. And we must not dismiss them because they don't hold to those convictions. We've been sent to them to be ambassadors of God's grace, to share the hope of Christ with them. Despite what the culture tells you, it is absolutely possible to not affirm someone and still love them. It is possible. It's it's called tolerance. And tolerance in its honest, purest form, not the warped cultural form, which is you must affirm everyone and everyone's truth is equally true, which doesn't, is like, just like, doesn't make sense. It's, you're talking in circles. It's not possible. Because to affirm one person's truth is to deny other people's truth. It doesn't work. But real tolerance is actually a Christian idea that you can disagree. You can say, that's wrong, but I love you and I will live at peace with you. I'll be a good neighbor to you. That's our our relationships in in the world around us, but but what about in the church? Well, within the church, we, we have to submit to God's word, which tells us in the scriptures, Romans 14, 1, to not quarrel over opinions. Useless, divisive, not quarrel over opinions. But we do need to press one another into clear agreement in light of the gospel on matters of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. The gospel, we've got to be agreed on that. God's word, we have to be submitted to that. You can see how that's going to take some effort. It's going to take some work. A lot more effort than a social media post is going to do for us. But as Justin Gibbon, he says, and he says this in light of just all the, the division and conflict and, and strife that we are dealing with. No other group is better situated to bring healing to this land than the church. No other group. You see, because the gospel does empower us to actually have real tolerance where we can not necessarily affirm, but beloved. We can seek to live at peace with all. And we can come together in Christ on what's truly important. We're, we're to strive for peace with everyone. And the preacher says, we're also to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's not difficult to see how these are related. Character and peace are, are, are woven together. It, it really makes sense, right? That, that if God's purpose in his discipline of us is our holiness, we've been told that verse 10, if he's pursuing our holiness, then we certainly should also be pursuing our holiness Together we should help one another in the, in the body of Christ. Strive for holiness. To finish well, we must strive for peace and holiness together. And to do that will require that we help each other look out for and avoid the obstacles of idolatry and worldly desire. As the passage continues, the, the exhortation shift from encouraging believers what to do to encouraging them about what they must avoid. And and those exhortations are, again, given communally with an urging to look out for each other. Look out for one another. Help one another. Avoid these obstacles. Beginning in the first part of verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This, this of course, reminds us that, that we must rely upon God's grace for everything, for everything in the Christian life. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We're brought into the, the family of God, adopted as his children, by grace. 
We grow in holiness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Continual daily repentance and faith growing in holiness. We strive for peace with one another, dependent upon his grace to empower that peace. We persevere to the finish line of the Christian life by grace through faith in Christ. We are utterly dependent upon his grace for everything. And the Bible again and again reminds us of the abundance of God's grace. We're told again and again that we cannot out his grace. Romans 5, Paul says, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It increases all the more. As John Blanchard says, for daily, there, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. And so the image one commentator suggests is, is that God's grace is, is like a, a pitcher, right? Filled to the brim in God's hand, tilted to pour it out lavishly upon us. Just ready to overflow. And there's no end to what's coming out of that picture. Grace upon grace upon grace. But the danger to be avoided is, is the various ways that we put a hand up and push back against the, the tilted pour of that pitcher. Sort of like at the, the breakfast diner, you know, where you've, you've hit your limit of coffee and you put your hand over the cup and you know, I'm, I'm done, no more. Except I never do that. I keep it coming. Um, the danger is to be avoided is, is the, the various ways we push against it and we, we cut ourselves off from the nourishment of needed grace. And there are a number of ways that we can do this. Here are three common ones. When we stop confessing our sins, push it off. When we, when we get out of the rhythm Neglect you know, feeding regularly on God's word, pushing it back. And when we neglect being in real community with other believers in the local church, we cut ourselves off. We cut ourselves off from the flow of God's abundant grace when we do that. For confessing sin, right? Coming before God and saying, I'm a, I'm a sinner in need of grace. What is God's response to that? If you were actually on time today, right? We read in Isaiah what he does to the wicked. He calls him and he, he abundantly pardons. He pours out all the grace you need and then some. When we confess our sin, he meets us with abundant grace. When we read his word, we're, we're reminded again and again of how abundant his grace is and how his grace is there for everything that we need. And the body of Christ helps us to understand his word. It keeps pointing us back to Jesus and the hope that we have, the reassurance that we have the grace that we need to keep pressing forward. To fight against this, we're called to see that no one cuts himself off from God's grace like this. And the command, see to it here in verse 15, is a plural command, making it every single person in the church's responsibility not just the staff, not the pastors only. Every believer in Christ in the church is to see to it, to look out for one another. And the verb, that, verb that's translated see to it is, is the Greek verb, that the noun form is, is the word for overseer or bishop, right? A, a title that's used interchangeably in the New Testament with elder and pastor. 
Three titles, one office in the local church. The idea is everyone in the church is called to act like a bishop, act like an overseer, looking out for your brothers and sisters in Christ, ensuring that they don't fail to obtain the grace of God, encouraging them, confronting them in love when you need to, but not standing by silently, right? This is, this is the opposite of the Midwestern value of minding your own business. But rather, it, it, we are called here to some gospel-centered, holy meddling in each other's lives, holy intervening in, in interference for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our brother and sister's growth in the Lord, and for our own sake, it's not a loving thing to turn a blind eye to your, your brother or sister's sin, their struggle. In fact, it's an unloving thing to do that. You are called to look out for one another. The second half of verse 15 says to us, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. In Deuteronomy 29:18, we're given an image of, of the bitter root uh, representing idolatry. Right? Going after lesser gods, false gods. And it's easy for us to hear that word idolatry and think in our culture, right? Like statues and shrines, like that's primitive stuff. I don't have to worry about idolatry. But you see, biblically, all sin is idolatry. It's idolatry. Idolatry, if you've been a part of our, our community groups the last few weeks, right? We've been going through the Gospel Center Life Study. We've been talking about this the last two weeks, right? Idolatry refers to the, the sin beneath the sin, the, the idols of the heart that, that motivate our sinful actions and attitudes. An idol is anything that we look to to give us what only Jesus can deliver. And idols can be anything. And oftentimes they're good things that we turn into ultimate things. It can be a relationship, spouse, children, career. They can be things like the approval of others, control, security. I need, a, I need to have a certain balance in the bank account so that I feel secure and taken care of. If that balance isn't there, I don't feel secure. Do you know what that is, friends? It's idolatry. Only Jesus provides you eternal security. It could be comfort and pleasure, power. The challenging thing about hard idols is that they are hidden. They are they're underneath the surface, right? They're underneath the surface, like a, a hidden seed that takes root and, and grows slowly. So only time kind of reveals what's really there. And we all have these heart idols that we wrestle with, that we're prone to chase after. And as a church, the danger is that some of the, these idols can become a root of bitterness in the, the body of Christ that can quickly spread, causing great trouble and damage and division with others in the body. And the thing is that every church is gonna have these bitter roots. You know, The thing is about idols is that when, it, when, when somebody infringes upon your idol, you're fighting mad, right? If somebody's gonna take the thing that you're putting your hope and trust in to deliver for you, and they're gonna criticize that thing, or they're gonna challenge that thing, it, it tends to lead to anger, to fighting, to division. 
And the danger is, is that every church is going to have these bitter roots, right? We'd be arrogant fools if we would think our church, oh, we're beyond that. That's not possible here, right? No, it, absolutely, they're here. They're here. They're here. So the calls for vigilance. Again, all of us are to look out for one another and to do the hard work of, of helping expose and fight the idols of our hearts that might become a bitter root. Next, we're called to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, verse 16 and 17 here, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is a warning about worldly desires and appetites and sexual desire in particular. And to give this warning, the preacher of Hebrews uses Esau, uh, the older brother of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Because Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac, Isaac, son of Abraham. In the book of Genesis, he uses Esau to kind of expose and show us the, the dangers here. And Genesis 25, where the, the, the account is kind of referenced from here, tells us the full account of what happens. Esau comes in from the field one day, and this, by the way, is the, uh, the Chris Jones paraphrased version, uh, but it, he comes in for the field hungry one day, and he finds his brother Jacob cooking a stew, right? Lentil stew. And so he tells Jacob, give me some of that stew. I'm hungry. I want it now, right? And Jacob responds, very, you know, however, Jacobly, uh, give me your birthright, right? Sell me your birthright right now, and I'll give you some of my stew. And the shocking response of Esau is, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? So he sells it for lentil stew, for a single meal, right? The man gave up his birthright for a cheap meal. We're not even talking like top-notch steak dinner, like the whole nine, the best appetizer, dessert. All, no, lentil stew, right? It's pathetic. Sounds very saguary. Um, the point is, Esau was a, was a man ruled by his physical urges. Ruled by them. Food, drink, sex, Sleep, that's Esau. He's a picture of godlessness. And, and friends, we live in a godless culture, we do, that encourages us to be ruled by our sexual desires. We're encouraged to find our primary, most fundamental identity in our sexual desires. We are encouraged to never deny yourself of what you desire. That's the truest part of who you are. You should embrace it. You should go for it. No denial. But as Christians, Jesus is to be Lord over all of our lives, including our sexual desires. How many Christian men and women have sabotaged themselves with lust and sexual sin? How many silently and, and secretly suffer under addiction to pornography? Suffocating from the shame 
But friends, Esau's example isn't given to make you feel like there's no hope for you. I know what it says here, verse 17. Right Afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. But here's where you need to be in the word and you need to go back and read the account. Esau, in the end, he regretted losing his birthright and he regretted forfeiting his father's blessing. But he never repented of his sin. There was not repentance. There were tears. But here's the thing. The reality is that tears alone do not signify repentance. Repentance always involves confession, contrition, and change. All three. Confession, right? An acknowledgement of your sin. I have done wrong against you, Lord. I have sinned against you. In a, a godly sorrow, a godly contrition over that sin. Uh, uh, I hate my sin. I, I feel terrible about my sin, Lord. I regret my sin, not regret the consequences of my sin. That's what Esau regretted, the consequences. And then it involves desire to change, desire to, to turn from pursuing your sin to pursuing Jesus pursuing him, to trusting in him. And when, where there is true repentance and faith, do you know how God stands ready to meet you? The pitcher is tilted and pouring and pouring and pouring grace upon grace where there is true repentance. No matter what you've done, no matter what your struggle has been, He stands ready to meet you with abundant grace. Abundant grace. Don't let the enemy isolate you and deceive you with lies. You're the only one, right? You're the only one. This is not true, friends. While while sexual temptation and sin may not be everybody's struggle in this room, We all struggle with our worldly appetites, right? Whether it's, you know, one more bite of food that is no good for our bodies, that we're seeking to find comfort and stress relief in in sugar, you know, to a gluttonous stance, or whether it's one more drink, looking for comfort and to calm the nerves, looking for hope in a bottle that we're not gonna find, or whether it's one more click on the internet, Looking for a little outlet from the stress. Looking for a little comfort, a little pleasure. We all struggle. We all do. May not be the exact same thing, but we're all wrestling with idols here. And so you're not alone. You're not. Don't believe the lies and the enemy to isolate you and cut you off from the flow of God's grace. But but let Jesus meet you with the grace that you need. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is a beautiful verse full of powerful truth and hope for the believer. But friends, sometimes you, I'm not encouraging you to twist scripture here but to apply it, sometimes in order to apply scripture, you need to personalize it a little bit more. 
to really feel the effect. Like this. God made Christ, who had no lust, to be punished as a porn addict for me. So that in Christ, I might become sexually pure before God. That's what that verse is saying. And if, again, if that's not your struggle, insert your sin there. My gluttony. My, my pursuit of security through my money. Whatever it is, Lord, just insert it there and, and, and feel the effect that, that Jesus meets you with grace upon grace poured out for you clothing you in his perfect righteousness. The righteousness of God. Not defined by your sin, but defined by his perfect righteousness. Grace upon grace. That's the grace that Jesus meets us with in our sin, even in our most embarrassing sins. That's the grace that he meets us with. And he draws us out. He draws us out because he loves us. And he wants us to finish well. And to finish well, we need to be vigilant in our fight against sexual temptation and worldly desire. Again, I, I, I'm not big into making rules. Like I'm not the guy who's gonna ever say, hey, I'm, I'm never gonna watch a rated R movie. Uh, and if you do, and, and like power to you, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I just, that's not where I draw the line. But what I will say, as I have grown older, and in my younger years, I'd make excuses for wanting to be relevant and wanting to be in touch with what people are watching. I have no need to see nudity in a TV show or a movie. None. Right? Is my life going to be terrible because I haven't watched Game of Thrones? I don't think so. I don't think so. But what it protects me from by not watching it is worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Be vigilant, right? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about lust, he says if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Not, he's not necessarily literally meaning pluck your eyes out and cut your hands off just in case anybody's gonna take that to that extent. But what he's saying is be vigilant. Don't give any room for the enemy to tempt you and, and lead you astray in these areas that you know you might struggle. Cut it off. And we need to fight for one another in this, to fight for our brothers and sisters, to, for their holiness, and, and to find brothers and sisters who we can be honest with about our struggles and invite them in to fight our sin with us, loving each other enough to, to reach out when, when we're struggling. Loving each other enough to reach out when we're concerned that a brother or sister, we, we see them struggling in some way. Fighting for each other's holiness that we might finish well together. We're called to run the race of the Christian life, not as individuals, but, but together. Looking to Jesus, resting in his grace, trusting in the Father's goodness to us, even in the hardest parts of the race. By that grace and through faith in Jesus, we are to pursue strength, strive for peace and holiness and lay aside every weight and sin that might discourage us 
or disqualify us. What is it that's weighing you down? What is it? What sin do you need to confess and bring to Jesus and lay aside today? Where are you in need of encouragement? Where do you believe, need to believe that, that while others meant it for evil, God means it for good? And how might you invite others in to reassure you of God's goodness and grace? How might you reassure them of that? How might you better strive to live at peace, to strive for peace with everyone? And what might you need to do about that today? Let's consider all that Jesus has done to rescue us and give us the grace that we need to endure. And let's look out for each other and let's finish well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so hard for us to see beyond what's happening to us in the moment. But we pray that you would enable us to trust you that even in the most difficult days, you are working for our good and your glory. Help us to fix our eyes on your son, Jesus, who suffered in our place for our sins, that he might bring us to you and make us your children. Jesus, help us to press into your grace as your people. Help us to be a church strengthened by your grace, by your spirit. Help us strive for peace and holiness and turn away and to turn away from every sin that would seek to distract us and disqualify us from the race you've set before us. Help us, Lord, to finish well together. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.